Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling. Coming up on this week's episode, we'll be joined by Rick Baker, Senior Vice President of Charging Solutions Sales at Volta. We'll talk a little bit about those EV charging stations that you're now seeing at retailers and shopping centers. Talk about the dynamics of those, why those might be attractive to retailers, and considerations that must be undertaken before actually installing one of those at a shopping center or at an individual retailer. Also, we'll look ahead to a major convenience store chain announcing this week that they'll be installing more self-checkouts. And in news, we'll discuss durable goods retailer that surpassed expectations but still maybe a less than optimistic outlook, at least sales-wise, in the near future. Quick reminder that you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. I was in the St. Louis metro area recently, took a few pictures that I passed along to Layton for posting there. And we also want to thank our associate producer, McKenna Langley, for helping out on the show. So let's get into our news segment as cons bucks the trend of that tepid durable goods forecast. They had a quarter that surpassed expectations, although sales were still down. We'll talk about that in a second. They also revealed a new partnership with department store chain Belk. Now, cons, because they are a regional chain, may not be familiar to our entire listener base, so I did want to give a bit of a background on them. They've got 161 stores, at least they did at the end of this most recent quarter, in 15 states. They continue to widen their store base most recently. They opened a new store in Kissimmee, Florida. They added three stores in the last quarter alone. Most of their stores, though, are in the south. They stretch Towards the Mountain West, as far west as Arizona, as far north as Denver, but they do want to expand geographically more between now and 2025. They're pretty firmly entrenched in the southern United States, based out of the Houston metro area, and they see white space for their concept. They're a retailer we've addressed a couple of times in the six years we've been doing the show. Their focus is largely on in-house financing, so most of the products that they sell are going to be financed either in-house or financed through third parties. So they're not just simply taking full payment for goods. In many cases, they do occasionally, and we'll talk about that as well a little bit later on. But they're not as entrenched in the rent-to-own space like Aaron's. Only a small portion of their product sales are rent-to-own. Their proposition more based on providing financing solutions to customers as much as possible. And when you look at a retailer like Aaron's, or like buddies, they're considered to be something of a negative beta company. So as the economy goes south, or maybe you enter into a recession, or you have a heavy inflationary period, Aaron's buddies, they typically, not always, but typically do a little bit better than their peers. So when you look at cons as a company, it would make some sense that they'd have some success relative to the competition in an inflationary environment where they are attempting to provide financing to a lot of their customers. So that gives you a little bit of a background about cons as a retail company. So let's get into the numbers from their first quarter. This would be their first quarter of fiscal 2023, as they are one ahead in terms of fiscal years. Analysts projected that earnings per share would be around 18 cents. Instead, adjusted earnings per share came in at 25 cents per share. And it was pleasant to see an earnings beat after a few misses 
over the past weeks that got a lot of press. By the way, Lululemon this week also had a solid earnings beat. And not only that, they raised guidance as far as overall revenues and earnings per share. They are killing it right now in specialty retail. But back to cons, it's not to say that cons saw a boost in sales. As I alluded to earlier, their sales did go down, but it's all relative to the rest of the industry. And that's where you see cons doing a little bit better than their competition. Cons same store sales fell 9.5% versus last year, impacted by lapping those stimulus payments that we talk about. But also other macro factors this year, and we'll dive into them, include financing. Despite all of the headwinds, e-commerce sales actually continued to rise for them. They were up a whopping 71.7% for the quarter year over year, now up to $18.3 million. In terms of revenue, it accounts for over 5% of overall company revenue. So here you're seeing a company that was pretty immature in terms of their e-commerce presence going into the pandemic. They worked hard during the pandemic to kind of ramp that up, and they are seeing benefits from that. But retail isn't the only area that they make money and bring in revenue. Credit services, as with errands, are a driver of revenue as well. Internally, they always look at the credit spread metric. This last quarter, it was 1,160 basis points. And that's a sign for them that their internal credit programs, which underwrite nearly half of their overall sales, continue to be robust. Their internal goal they laid out in a presentation earlier this year to investors when talking about their growth plans and their strategy leading up to year 2025 is 1,000 basis points or more. So they came in well above that. And that's a good sign as far as revenue for them on their credit services. But they did mention tightening of financing requirements from their third-party lease-to-own vendors. So they do bring in third-party financiers for certain sales. This was a factor that reduced in-store sales because more customers are getting turned down by these third-party lease-to-own vendors, which make up a smaller portion of sales. Customers, therefore, found it more difficult to either finance items on credit through those third parties or negotiate lease-to-own deals with those third parties. And I think we're likely to see it not only in the furniture segment, but when you look at all of retail, private label credit cards for retailers as well. I think it'll be interesting to see if this has a ripple effect on incremental revenues from these resources. A lot of retailers talk about driving non-traditional revenue through those private label card programs. So as you continue to navigate an uncertain environment, you're likely to see those credit limits decrease in certain circumstances. You're likely to see more of those card applications get turned down. And as such, you might not see that much in terms of non-traditional revenue from those sources, or at least as much as some of these retailers were seeing pre-pandemic. Certainly, 2018, 2019, private label credit cards were kind of all the rage in terms of driving a heavy amount of these revenues. Another metric that they look at is the number of customer accounts receivable for cons that are 60 plus days past due. And the number of accounts receivable that were about two months past due, 10.3% at the end of the first quarter. That's actually down slightly for them sequentially from 10.4% at the end of their last fiscal year. So there are fewer accounts out there that are past due, which is good for cons because it means they're getting those payments. People are paying on time relatively and paying the interest on those. 
but you're seeing a tightening credit situation overall. So it's kind of a mixed bag when you look at some of the revenue they pull in from credit services. And if you dig a little bit deeper, the weighted average credit score for cons outstanding balances or for customers with outstanding balances at cons, that's actually gone up in the last year too, from 603 to 609. So you're seeing a slight increase in terms of credit score for the average consumer. But this also might show the new selective nature of some of the third-party financing partners. So the credit score obviously includes deals that are financed outside of cons. Now, as far as new applications processed for financing during the last quarter, those numbers have gone down as well. So it's not just a matter of everyone still wants to buy furniture, but they're getting turned down more. You saw those new applications drop over 10% from 297,000 to 267,000 applications. Now, that being said, the fact that same-store sales dropped less than that, that's a positive for cons because it means, obviously, ticket size going up maybe a little bit more than what would have been expected. So despite this drop, and despite the credit score, the average credit score of new applications rising from 617 a year ago to 619 now, and also the average income of most applicants rising by an average of $1,600, the percentage of new applications approved with cons, and that's either internally or through their third party, that's actually gone down 160 basis points. So here you have customers with more robust credit that are making more in their household, but are getting turned down more often. And that obviously is going to constrain some of their sales, but it's also resulted in a greater shift to in-house financing for their customers. So cons In this last quarter, nearly half, as I mentioned, 49.8% of sales were paid for with in-house financing, 17.9% were paid for with third-party financing, and just 7.4% with lease-to-own. So that means about 25% of sales are paid for upfront at cons. And these numbers are important because it really shows that cons willing to underwrite a few more deals because those third-party financiers are turning down their customers. But generally speaking, you are seeing tightening credit and tightening credit is going to be a bad omen for cons and a lot of other larger furniture stores. But it's, it's why it's necessary for them to explore additional avenues for sales. And that leads us to their partnership with Belk. So this was announced at the same time as their earnings call. It'll be in a pilot stage at first, and it'll include both brick and mortar stores and sales on Belk.com. And interestingly, the concept, which is a store within a store offering, as so many of them are, that's going to launch under a new private label brand that'll be specifically created rather than playing significantly off of the existing cons brand. CEO of cons, Chandra Holt, said that they're hopeful that this partnership can kind of lay the groundwork for what they feel like could scale up and become a much larger business. Again, looking at that presentation that I discussed moments ago regarding their growth plans over the next three years, they really want to see exponential growth as a company. And it's difficult when you rely on some of those macro factors like ease of financing. So if you partner with a retailer like Belk, it makes it a lot easier to grow and achieve that exponential growth that they're looking for over the next three years. And geographically, Belk makes perfect sense. The geographical footprint is almost a carbon copy of what Cons has. Belk does stretch a little bit farther northward in the southeastern United States 
than does Cannes and doesn't stretch quite as far west as Cannes. But overall, you could do a lot worse if you're looking for a department store with which you're looking to partner. The result of this store-within-a-store pilot concept over the next year is that they plan on opening about 10 to 20 of these locations within Belk stores during the remainder of the fiscal year. This is, I think, pretty ambitious considering they haven't even revealed the branding for this furniture line as yet. Overall, now Cons expects to open 20 to 34 new stores during the fiscal year, and that is inclusive of the store-within-a-store concept, so really kind of looking at about 10 to 14 new brick-and-mortar stores, including the three they opened up in this last quarter. The store-within-a-store concept will depend on the size of the Belk store. Square footage is going to range anywhere from 10,000 to 25,000 square feet, so quite a bit larger than other store-within-a-store concepts. And if it goes well, of course, in this year, they plan on scaling it even further in future years. But I think this is a circumstance where both retailers could use each other. This is a way for cons to scale and kind of add locations under their belt without having to negotiate some of the leases for the larger square footage stores that they might have out there, the 30 to 40,000 square foot locations. And it seems like this is a partnership that could be fruitful for both companies. Of course, we've seen store within a store partnerships be generally successful, but there are scattered cases of them not being quite as successful. And looking from Belk's perspective, you know, they have a number of locations that are maybe more square feet than they need at this point. And so this is a way for them to make use of that extra square footage and kind of utilize that in the same way that Kohl's several years ago started renting out part of their locations to Aldi and an external entrance there. So ultimately, you're looking at a department store retailer that is right-sizing some of their brick-and-mortar locations, and you're looking at a furniture store that is eager to expand and bring in revenue from other sources because, again, having issues with third-party financing being a little bit more close to the vest in terms of funds. A varied landscape looking forward for cons. I don't think it's all negative necessarily. I don't think you're going to see same-store sales increase anytime soon, but always a good thing to be on the lookout for new and different ways to bring in revenue, especially outside of maybe your core stores and maybe your core financing competencies. So congratulations for Cons and Belk in getting this pilot underway, and I certainly hope to visit one of these pilot locations in the southern United States over the next six months once they begin to open. Well, that'll do it for this news segment. Coming up after this break, once again, joined by Rick Baker, the Senior Vice President of Charging Solutions Sales at Volta, as we continue our ICSC interview series. Rick is going to tell us a little bit about not only what Volta does as a company, but what he's seen as far as retail centers adopting more of these charging stations, why charging stations are important to include in a retail center, and some of the thought processes that have to be undertaken before installing one of these locations, including the location within the parking lot to ensure best customer flow. All that and more right after this. (music) 
Increasingly, we're seeing more people turn to electric vehicles as a transportation solution, and so many retailers, shopping centers, and mixed-use developments are including EV charging stations within their lots. But there's a lot more to these charging stations than meets the eye. And as we continue our interview series surrounding ICSC, we're pleased to be joined by Rick Baker, Senior Vice President of Charging Solutions at Volta. Rick, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a privilege. Thank you so much for having me. First, could you tell us a little bit about what Volta and what you guys do as a company overall? Absolutely. Like a lot of our friends in the industry, we have the opportunity to be a charging company where we're able to go and build a network where people that are investing in electrification with EVs and all the new types of vehicles that are coming out on a regular basis, where they can go and charge their vehicle in a variety of different ways. But maybe a little bit different, we also use a data-driven AI approach to how we do things. And we also use our media business to drive customer behavior and to be able to partner with our site partners, retailers, tenants, to really affect how, if you will, the shopper experience begins well beyond the doors before they ever get in. And we'll talk about a lot of these things during the course of the interview, the data, the media options. But first, I wanted to take a look back over the last, say, five years. What type of growth have we seen as far as retail centers offering EV chargers as a solution for their customers? You know, if you go back five years, and I would say that there was just a handful of auto OEMs. The ones that come to mind are the Teslas, the Nissan Leaf. And so there was a handful of charging solutions that were out there, but to find them was really difficult. You may have an app and you would drive a few miles to finally go find one, but that would often cause people to be concerned about the potential adoption. And so I would say over the past five years, we've gone from seek and discover to now, candidly, you can find charging solutions in a variety of places, not as many places as we need them to be to keep up with the new demand that's coming out, but certainly the entire wave of electrification has changed and the dialogue around it has changed. One only has to watch the Super Bowl to know that. Yeah, and as we talked about, adoption is rising as there are more charging centers, so it kind of builds upon itself. On a high level, from a retailer's perspective, or maybe a retail center's perspective, why is it important to include charging stations as a customer service? And what type of returns can they bring as far as customer spend, customer loyalty, and also the amount of time customers are spending on that property? Well, we've had this amazing thing that impacted us all called COVID and you know, certainly disrupted the past couple of years. Getting people to now venture out versus just do e-commerce, which there's a combination that, you know, e-commerce isn't bad, but getting people to leave their homes, get inside stores in the community and to spend more time is more than just a simple shopping experience. It's now people beginning to say, where can I go that I can get more accomplished at once? There's a lot of reasons why people begin to go to a store but sometimes they'll go to two or three places to get their errands done, if you will. But as the adoption, if you will, of electrical vehicles continues to rise, what we're noticing is that people are making different decisions. You have various types of charging folks that are out there, 
And they're asking the question, can I top off or can I get a necessary charge? Because I happen to live in an environment like a high rise apartment buildings that don't have charging opportunities like many, you know, kind of single family owned homes where you could put something in the garage. They're out there looking for those necessary charges to fill up, not just top off. And so I think the return ultimately is measured in customer experience of adoption to know that I can come to your Albertsons or to your Kroger or to a shopping center and I can accomplish many things. I can shop, I can experience it. I know that if I can stay here 30, 45 minutes to an hour, I can go from being topped off to being filled up completely in my electrified vehicle. And I leave knowing that I've accomplished some tasks, I've stayed on premise, and potentially, if you look at EV drivers' adoption rate, they have a 66% greater spending power oftentimes than the average consumer. And that's according to Experian, a third-party resource. And so when I think about reaching a targeted set of buyers to create that experience, EV drivers are that attractive customer for retailers. One of the other numbers I found outstanding was when visiting the Volta booth at ICSC, I think it was four out of five charging customers are loyal to charging stations. So that that's pretty remarkable as well. Now, when a retailer approaches you, it's not just, okay, we're going to plop down a, a charging station or a charging solution here. There's a lot that goes into it. Obviously, you mentioned the AI-driven data earlier on, but what goes into determining the best place physically for a charging station in a lot? Yeah, and so this kind of goes back to your earlier question. Five years ago, you know, many of the early proponents out there would have put stations in the back and the easiest locations that nobody really cared about, if you will, or they were off the beaten path. And that's not a bad thing. What's changed a little bit is when we approach it, because we are a media-driven network, not just a charging network, where we're partnering with our site partners to think about customer buying behavior, we start thinking about what do the locations look like in front of the doors? How do we impact not just the EV driver, but if you put a 55-inch digital screen that has important and relevant contextually relevant ads in front of a building, then what you have is you have an opportunity to affect more than the drivers. You affect everyone that has a line of sight to those beautiful screens. And so we begin to first measure out where do those locations need to be that optimize impressions. And we think about it not just from a charging point of view, because all charging companies charge and you know transfer electrons. The other piece that makes us distinctive is that we use the media piece and begin to ask the question, how can we get impressions and eyes on to things, not just for EV drivers, but for the total network and total experience for those buyers? So that's number one. Number two, we begin to ask the question around how many do you need? Because we don't want, it's funny, we go to Vegas for these amazing conferences and it's been a while. So it's great to see Vegas lighting back up and people going back out after COVID. But we don't want our parking lots to look like Las Vegas, perhaps, <laughs> with too many screens. So one of the things we use our predictive platform to do is to determine the right mix and the right types of chargers that are out there and understanding jurisdiction and utility requirements 
that all goes into play of saying, where do we put them? How many do we put? And how long will it take to actually get them in the ground? I think you mentioned something that's great and maybe not meeting the eye immediately when you look at these different solutions, but there are, of course, sometimes requirements or limitations based on utilities that are there. Also, there's different options depending on how quick or how fast those customers want to get in or out of a particular store. So as you mentioned, all of them transfer electrons, but what are some different options, some different optionalities that retailers have in terms of choosing exactly how robust a charger they select for their property? Yeah, as we think about dwell time, so if you take an example, take a theater experience, you're going in to see a movie, and when you think about level three or what has been commonly become known as DC fast charging, where the transference of electrons is a lot higher, it's faster, it can charge a vehicle fully in less than an hour, and sometimes in a really reduced amount of time, you don't want people having to leave their movie to come and move their vehicle. And so the other option that many people are also installing in their own homes is called level two. And while the charging opportunity may not be as robust as a level three, you still get what is called a top off. You have the opportunity in a couple of hours to get 40 to 60, 70 different miles added to your vehicle while you're experiencing the beauty of seeing a movie. Now, if you come over to a grocery store where the average dwell time is just above 40 minutes, imagine putting a level three DC fast solution there. Not only can you get a optimized top off if you're low, but you, for many of your shoppers, especially around urban environments, more and more people are living in those high rises I mentioned, this becomes that necessary charge. So it's necessary to go shopping for food and it's necessary to fill up your vehicle, if you will. And so by combining those tasks of opportunity, you're now giving people options. The other thing that people are thinking about that I really enjoy is how businesses are thinking about, hey, how do I make this an employee option that benefits them? They drive their EVs to work. Well, I want them to be able to experience filling up at work and providing that as an opportunity for their employees. So we see a variety of different uses for level two, level three, and depending on dwell time, utilization, customer experience, and the environment around us, what is the right type of solution or hybrid of solutions, if you will, where you have a combination of both. And because we have both media and non-media, it gives us a great degree of optionality to help partner with the tenants and the REITs and others to make the best decisions for their customers. Of course, you mentioned media, non-media options. You talked about the screens and the messaging that can be there. And on the ICSC floor, I got a chance to interact with some of the different charging solutions. And honestly, the screens are what stood out the most to me with those dynamic messaging platforms. And as I talked about in the open, we hear so much about retailers chasing that non-traditional revenue. How can electric chargers, kind of this next generation of electric chargers, so to speak, assist in ensuring that retailers also get some incremental revenue from that relevant messaging to their customer base? Well, one of the interesting things about our platform and on the media side of our business is that our partnerships with those tenants, with those great brands, 
means that they can also leverage our media network, whether they're wholesale buying into it, they're reselling it, or they're advertising their own you know, key brands. We have national campaigns, we do programmatic, but when we talk to very savvy customers, and there's so many of them out there that have media businesses, they're all using and leveraging the voice of their business to reach the ears of the buyer. And so using our screens, there's a way to be multifaceted in how they touch those buyers, whether it's through a corporate message, it's a community message. Some of our engagements with local municipalities, it's really about the community. How do they talk to the population? For a tenant, it could be, hey, we have a sale on this particular thing. We've put out a couple of recent case studies that have validated that if we put these ads right in front of the buyer, both EB drivers as well as non-EB, we can have an opportunity to create an impression to remind them, maybe to highlight something that's in the store and draw their attention to that. And we can see measurable impact by the buying behavior. The other reality I think happens is that all these folks are creating loyalty programs. And so just like they're loyal to a set of chargers, if you will, they'll be loyal to a set of stores. And as we partner in the future to combine both the experience of charging, the media, and then loyalty that comes from our customers, like we announced with Walgreens, where you're able to tie these things together and be able to get, if you will, reward points towards charging. And you can also bring those ads up within that platform on your phone, not just the digital screen that's outside. And we can tie those things together. I think the ability to unify the voice on several modes from the large 55 inch screens to the data-driven platforms we use called phones, which I don't even know if people even use them as phones anymore. I think that it's all about data transfer. But you know, I think that that's where we see the greatest uplift and the connection for these buyers. Now, when I was talking to others at the conference about being able to talk with you about these charging solutions, I think the most common question that came up, obviously, you know, the revenue is important, the thought process and decision-making is important, but a lot of people wanted to know just what the process was behind installation of these devices themselves on the property. So what are some of the things that maybe installation actually entails not from the super technical standpoint, but kind of what's the process there once you've figured out a site on the retailer or shopping center's property? Yeah, I think one of the first things, and we all do this of some form or fashion, is we do a qualification visit. We have to walk the site. Sometimes, if you will, the Google Maps and all, while they're good, seeing it with your own eyes and seeing where the obstructions are, to see where the entry points are and physically taking pictures and understanding, doing that site survey to determine, hey, where should we put? We think theoretically they should go here, but when you walk it, it tells you a totally different story sometimes. Sometimes it validates what you think, but sometimes it'll fine tune those. So that qualification visit is super important. The next thing is to understand local jurisdiction. There's a lot of variance throughout the country and municipalities across this country of how they think about signage. How far can it be? Where can it be? How large can it be? And the next thing is to ask about utility rights. If you're dealing with level two, you can tap into house power. But if you're dealing with level three, it's a totally different picture when you're trying to stand up 
a separate utility and working directly with the utility companies about running conduit and putting up all the right stations that meet code. And often that can take an extra amount of time, three to six months as you get approvals and work through the utility process. So depending from a high level on what the combination and the solution is, that site walk, local jurisdiction, working within the permitting, and then moving towards utility engagement, where that power will come from. And that's all before you get to construction. So all those are elements that oftentimes in newer DMAs and places where they haven't had a lot of electrification, it's a growing experience for everyone. That's some great insight into kind of what goes on behind the scenes. As we so often talk about, it's not just a matter of plopping something somewhere and and calling it good. A lot has to go into it beforehand. I want to close out the way we kind of began. I began by asking you about maybe the last five years and the growth that we've seen in this space. As we look forward now at the next five years, what excites you most about the future of EV charging stations within shopping centers, retailers, mixed-use developments, and so forth? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and it's one of the reasons I wake up daily, Trent, and I'm excited to be a part of not just this mission that so many of us are on, but even the mission here at Volta. I'm going to narrow it, uh, and it's going to sound like I'm narrowing it, but there's four things that come front and center to my mind, and other people could probably add a dozen more. But number one, I feel like the government is beginning to get behind the promise. It's the start. I mean, you look at IJA and, you know, seven and a half billions being released and being put in various places and whether or not each of our companies will all be able to tap into that and how that money will flow. I think the more important thing is the promise is turning into a process where there's actual release of dollars and understanding that infrastructure is necessary to light this up because oftentimes the resistance has been, how far can I go? Maybe it's good around town, but can I really take my EV on a road trip? Well, if you knew the infrastructure was there, maybe you'd be more inclined to buy an EV. So I think one leads to the other. The second one is not only existing auto OEMs, but brand new ones that never existed before, the Rivians of the world, not just Tesla. Tesla's proven they've got a great vehicle, it's beautiful, and they're continuing to innovate, but other auto OEMs that are creating vehicles that now can reach across a landscape of socioeconomic buyers that make it reachable, that it's not just a Tesla high end, but now it's folks that drive trucks. It's folks that want more of just a vehicle within the price range that's similar to what they have today in all various types of markets. Thirdly, what's very exciting for me to watch is understanding that electrification is not just a thing that's coming, it's here, it's happening. And it is interesting to see, even, and I live here in Texas, you can't throw a rock without hitting an EV around my neighborhood. That means adoption's happening. That the average buyer's beginning to think about holistically, how do we create a differentiated experience for sustainability? It's not just solar power panels on our house, but it's how we drive. In the current climate with high gas prices, people are asking, what's the alternative? We're not gonna turn everything in a day, but certainly we can make a difference. And as we measure against carbon impact, CO2, all the things that happen with that sustainable miles, people care about this. I sat across from people at ICSC 
and some of our customers that got excited knowing that they were making a measurable difference by standing these stations up. It's not just about the dollars, it's about the mission. And finally, and I think this kind of goes even further for Volta, is that we're able to combine together something that's so important with customer experience, a data-driven perspective, as well as a charging experience, and combine together the customer behavior as a whole. And I think that's only going to increase because people are no longer asking why, they're asking when. And when you begin to ask when, you've been convinced of the what and the why. And that's a much different conversation. So I think the future for all of us, whether you're media or non-media, is very bright. I think that's a great opportunity, and I think it's good for our environment, and I think it's good for businesses that buy into this and provide this infrastructure for their customers. I'm excited looking ahead about it now. You got me amped up about it. No no pun intended, I guess. But <laughs> Rick, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure and a great conversation. Thank you so much, Trent. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Thank you for allowing us to join. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. So we thank Rick for joining us and we'll wrap up this episode relatively quickly. Now, a quick preview to next week's interview segment. We'll be joined by Ed Corey, who is Managing Director of RCS. He'll talk a little bit about the landscape of lease negotiation from a retailer's perspective, what retailers are looking for in terms of leases, where landlords are pushing back, and kind of the next generation of retail leases that we might see, especially given the fact that a lot of high-level inventory is being snatched up. There's not as much of this, so he'll talk a little bit about bargaining chips that retailers might have available on the table. It's a wide-ranging discussion, and I'm certainly looking forward to being joined by Ed here on the show, especially if you're not as familiar with retail lease structures. He kind of goes into the very basics of those. Well, in our Looking Ahead segment, it was announced this week actually within a Forbes article about self-checkouts that Kushtard will be looking to deploy even more self or smart checkout systems to its Circle K stores in the United States potentially up to 7,000 of its stores here in North America, bringing in more of the Mashkin touchless checkout systems. They've tried it to this point on a pilot stage over the last couple of years. In fact, 500 Circle K stores throughout not only the U.S., but also Europe as well have employed those. And they found that customers, in some cases, favor paying with those self-checkout systems or the smart checkout systems around 80% of the time. So that's a positive for Circle K. It's something that you expect to see a little bit more of in the convenience store space. Circle K, as far as they're concerned, and something that Kushtard executives said as well, was that, you know, hey, honestly, that employee-to-customer interaction there at the front of the store is probably the most boring part of the interaction that a customer will have inside RC stores. And so looking to kind of speed up that process, maybe automate that process, 
These checkouts can cost yeah, anywhere between a thousand and a little more than that per month to run, but it seems as though Kustard is seeing a benefit to that throughout their stores. Circle K, just in general, has done a great job renovating many of their stores. The newer stores they're opening are, are much larger and much more similar to a Maverick or a Quick Trip or a Wawa store that you would see in a different area of the United States. But the reason I'm looking ahead here is you do see some of those regional operators being a little bit hesitant at this point to add self-checkouts to their locations or smart checkouts to their locations. And I'm anxious to see if others follow in Kustard's footsteps. We do know C-Store retail, as is all retail, it's, it's a copycat industry. But this is, I think, especially true of convenience stores where you've seen overall square footage grow. You've seen many more ready-to-eat food options be installed regardless of the chain that you're discussing. And I'm anxious to see if more stores like this don't begin to include self-checkouts or smart checkouts in the future. We've obviously seen this in the dollar store realm and you're seeing more of it there. But as things so often do in the convenience store space, it comes down to, of course, loss prevention. How good are these machines at loss prevention? And as far as Mashkin is concerned, they say their registers are about 99.9% accurate there. So how good are they at loss prevention and how convenient will it really be for the customer in terms of that quick uptake learning that technology. We've seen more and more users using self-checkouts, especially since the beginning of the pandemic in grocery stores. We've seen Walmart go all out on their adoption of self-checkouts. So it's only natural that the C-Store space follows, but that'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus Podcast. Once again, big thanks to McKenna and Layton for helping out. And a big thanks to Rick Baker for joining us this week. I'm Trent Kling saying so long until about seven days from now when our next episode will launch. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.